ice, a Jedi's strength flows from the Force. But beware of the dark side. Hello and welcome to our latest podcast in the time of social distancing. Today is May the 4th and uh, we're going to talk about our amended best practice to address the governor's eviction executive order. Uh, When we adopted the original order, we understood that um, that was just to initially address how we're going to make it work and that as time went on, we may have to amend it to address additional questions as they arise. Uh, it is time to, it was time to go ahead and answer some of those additional questions. And so I do have a couple of extremely important guests. Uh, Gerald Williams, who is the chair of the Best Practices Committee uh, and uh, the Justice of the Peace for the North Valley Justice Court and uh, uh, Justice of the Peace of the Year, Anna Huberman from the Country Meadows Justice Court, who has uh, the most evictions in the state. Uh, and both were very active in drafting the amendments to uh, the best practice. Um, so we're going to go ahead and get started. Do either of you have anything to say before we get started? Other than we should say something about Happy Star Wars Day or something like that. No. And, and actually, I'm going to introduce the podcast with a little Yoda clip. That's why I said today was May the 4th. Uh, Judge Huberman? Uh so, just that I know that this is a topic that brings a lot of concern and anguish uh, because of the situation that we're in, and uh, hopefully everyone will find this uh, helpful. Okay. And uh, Judge Huberman, uh, kick us off. Okay, so um, I, I really want to start just really quickly. Everyone who knows me knows that I like to start with statistics. Um, There are about 43.8 million renting households in the United States. About half of those are owned by individual investors. About 19.5 million are multifamily homes. Um, And 28% of the units have either um, have federally backed loans and about 5 million have some kind of subsidy. Uh, Those numbers will come into play in a moment. There's about 51,000 in Arizona uh, that fall under the, the housing with uh, federally backed loans or subsidies. As to the timeline, when all this started, um, on March 13th, there was a national uh, emergency declaration uh, by the president. On March 15th, the city of Phoenix halted all evictions for city-owned houses. On March 18th, uh, HUD, um, Housing and Urban Development, um, put out a moratorium for evictions and foreclosures for FHA mortgages, which are uh, federal housing administration loans for 60 days. All of this, well, they were very specific moratoriums directed to very specific types of housing, but it had created in the public, in the press, Uh, a lot of confusion. People didn't understand. People thought that all evictions were being stayed, that people didn't have to pay their rent or they couldn't get evicted. And then on March 24th, the governor of Arizona uh, signed an executive order suspending evictions for 120 days. On March 27th, uh, the Congress uh, passed and the president signed the Coronavirus Aid Relief an Economic Security Act, which we could call the CARES Act, that established the moratorium for federally backed mortgages um, and federal subsidies. So anyone who rented uh, a home with federally um, backed mortgages or subsidies, uh, there was a moratorium on those evictions also. And then several cities followed suit with similar. Um, it's important to note, though, with, uh, with all these different programs that are out there, they all refer to very specific types of housing, uh, and they, they, it's not for all um, properties and it's not for all tenants. In Arizona, though, the executive order, which is the one that we're talking about today in this podcast, is the one that covers all of evictions in the state of Arizona. 
For that executive order, it is important to understand that rent has not been suspended, it has not been canceled, and it has not been forgiven. It only puts on hold the landlord's remedy of eviction. So um, with the moratoriums, the ones that are federally back homes, those, they can't even initiate um, an eviction action. And uh, additionally, they cannot charge late fees on those. Uh, with the CARES Act, not only can they not initiate an eviction action, they can't actually require them to vacate until giving them a notice to vacate for 30 days after the expiration of that moratorium. The Arizona executive order only delays the risk. So the landlord can file the eviction, they can obtain a judgment, and then the tenant can request that the writ of restitution be stayed. Um, uh, and, and just to clarify, that's not delaying the issuance of the writ, it is delaying the enforcement of the writ. That is correct. Actually, the remedy of the tenant doesn't actually go into effect until a writ has been issued and the constable comes to execute the writ. That is when the tenant would um, indicate that they have one of the COVID reasons to have that writ stayed, and then that writ could be delayed. Uh, the executive order is just postponing everything. It is not stopping anything from happening. All right, and so I will address the cases that are governed by the order and what the COVID reasons are and the written notice that must be given. Well, one of the issues that we had with the executive order is it, it refers to tenant, lessee, or resident and doesn't define any of them. Uh, our original best practice did include that we believe it applied to tenants and mobile home parks and so um, in, in the amended one, we also added uh, those subject to the Recreational Vehicle Act. Uh, so basically, we believe if it's a residential tenant, they're entitled to the protection of the executive order. Uh, the type, the, under the executive order, um, a writ would be stayed unless it is necessary to enforce the writ in the interest of justice or in accordance with ARS section 33-1368A. The COVID reasons that would require that the writ be delayed are contained in the executive order under paragraph 1A through E, and A is the individuals required to be quarantined based on the diagnosis of COVID-19, B, the individual is ordered by a licensed medical professional to self-quarantine based on their demonstration of symptoms as defined by the Centers for Disease Control. C, the individual is required to be quarantined based on someone in the home being diagnosed with COVID-19. D, the individual demonstrates that they have a health condition as defined by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that makes them more at risk for COVID-19 than the average person. E, the individual suffered a substantial loss of income resulting from COVID-19, including job loss, reduction in compensation, closure of place of employment, obligation to be absent from work to care for a homebound school-aged child, or other pertinent circumstances. So the next question is, um, is what is the written notice? And the executive order doesn't address what the executive or uh, what that written notice is. In our best practice, we specifically said we interpret that to include uh, emails and text messages, electronic notice. Uh, since the executive order came out, several agencies and organizations, including the Supreme Court and CLS and our constables themselves, have come up with forms um, that are checkbox forms that are really easy for the tenant to provide to the landlord to provide that notice. Uh, so it uh, it's intended to be interpreted as broadly as possible and to provide protection to the tenant where we believe that tenant is entitled to protection. Uh, and it is possible that um, the governor's office is going to amend the executive order 
with respect to the type of notice or documentation that must be given. The constables, at least the Maricopa County constables, are on the same page as we are uh, with respect to our best practice. Judge Williams? Thank you. Just to provide initially some additional uh, context, uh, because people other than justices of the peace are going to be listening to this podcast most likely. Uh, residential evictions in Arizona move very, very quickly. Depending on the st uh, how aggressive the landlord is, a, a tenant who fails to pay their rent can normally be removed from the residence in about two and a half to three weeks. If the procedural requirements have been met, then essentially the only defense to non-payment of rent is that the rent has been paid. So normally the goal of, of the judicial branch is to have judges you know, dutifully, impartially, and consistency, consistently apply a lot of the facts of the case before them. Um, but doing so during a public health emergency can quickly become very, very frustrating. Um, it's not a defense to the eviction action, but a tenant's health can dramatically change either from the time the complaint was filed until the time the case was heard or from the time the judgment was signed until the restitution is served. So one of the things the governor's order did that was very, very helpful was give judges a framework to analyze these, these issues within. Um, the order, as you just went over, lists you know, several specific criteria um, that a tenant can provide notice to their landlord. Um, the, the focus on, in a lot of media is, is always on the, the tenant. Um, and landlords are often perceived as unsympathetic litigants, but they also have a right to expect that a tenant will honor their lease, and if the tenant, the tenant does not honor their lease, then remedies for that breach will be enforced. Uh, their interests have to be balanced as well, uh, perhaps especially since the governor's executive order makes it very clear that rental obligations are going to continue. One of the things that the governor's order did specifically say was not a basis for an eviction was the tenant could not provide information to their landlord saying that they or a member of their household had a, a COVID-19 or coronavirus related condition um, and then the landlord turns around and uses that against them. Um, that would, I think everyone would agree, would be manifestly unfair and uh, the governor's executive order specifically says a landlord shall not interpret a health and safety provision of a contract to include COVID-19 as a reason for termination of a lease or rental agreement, nor shall a landlord terminate a lease or rental agreement solely based on the information provided by the tenant to satisfy the requirements of the order. Um, I hadn't heard of anyone trying that, but the governor's order makes it clear that the landlord can't say that you have a material health and safety violation, you're contagious, therefore I'm going to evict you. Um, that's specifically not allowed under the governor's executive order. Thank you. And uh, Judge Huberman... Oh, I'm sorry. There was. Um, you also wanted me to talk about the, the consult process. Um, the, the procedure that we have in place in our best practice and we, it, it helped that we had a constable help write, write our initial best practice and they've They've come up with their own best practice, but really nothing changes. The, the governor's order didn't change Arizona law, so nothing changes until the point where the judge signs the writ of restitution. At that point, the constable goes to the residence and can provide the, the judge with real-world, real-time sort of eyes on the situation. And if the, the constable knocks on the door and says, I'm here to serve a writ of restitution, you have to grab your things and move, the tenant can say, but I have a, a condition um, where I have a protective status on the governor's order. And our constables in Maricopa County are saying, well, did you tell the landlord? If they say no, the constables are giving the tenants five additional days to get documentation, which can be the checkoff form and maybe something attached to it to their landlord or to the property manager um, and at that point the constable just holds on to the writ and doesn't execute it and the ball is back in the landlord's court if the landlord wants to still 
seek immediate possession of the residence, then they filed a, a motion to compel um, in justice court. And I think most of us have, have seen a handful of those now. All right, thank you. And uh, Judge Huberman began with a discussion including the CARES Act, and I do want to point out we do have a separate podcast uh, that does address the CARES Act that is um, contained in this, in this podcast feed. I also want to point out that the written materials today are going to be found in Hightail, uh, so please um, go and review those written materials as well. All right, Judge Huberman. Uh, yes, thank you for that. I forgot to tell everyone that there, there was a full podcast on the CARES Act. Um, and additionally, I also forgot to mention that I think it, it is, would be correct for the judicial officer to inquire of the landlord during the eviction hearing um, if their property is subject to any of those uh, federally-backed mortgages or federal uh, subsidies uh, that are covered by the CARES Act, uh, because the tenant has no way of knowing, and we would assume that a that a represented landlord is actually um, it's part of their due diligence and it would be part of their um, avowals. But uh, I still, as a practice, always ask them to make sure that the property is not covered by the CARES Act, and most definitely that should be done with all uh, private or non-represented landlord. Um, and then going back to the executive order, um, it was already mentioned uh, that there was a lot of guidance that wasn't specifically spelled out in the order, and a lot of it um, was interpreted by us in the best practice. Uh, the, the fact that the tenants, it only talks about tenants and residents. Uh, it does talk about uh, residences and we did interpret that to mean that it includes mobile homes and RVs. Um, the, the executive also, in, in paragraph two, speaks about the written notice that the tenant must give. Um, one of the things that it says is that the notice must be provided to the landlord or the property owner. So the, we all know that the, that the Arizona Residential Landlord Tenant Act has specific provisions as to how notices must be served and who uh, receives those notices. But we did not interpret that this executive order was guided by, by that because this is something outside of the Arizona Residential Landlord Tenant Act. And it is meant to have a broader and a more, uh, a broader interpretation and because of the interest of justice, uh, it should be something that was more easily easily accessible by the by the tenants. So um, we we considered that the, the written notice could be handed to the manager as agents of the owner that they didn't have to go to the actual owner or the person held out on the lease as the person to receive service. But if the tenants usually deal with a, an office. On the, on the on the ground or with the property manager, that they could give those notices to that person. Um, it does say that it should be in writing, but it doesn't specify uh, that it has to be served in a specific way. So again, we have interpreted that it it could be served by email, it could be served by text message, um, in any way that would cover the in writing requirements. And I have seen that some places have been um, telling tenants that they should send these certified mail. Um, certified mail is a or in person to the to the to the landlord. I think that both of these things will create an issue. Most of the offices in the apartment complexes are closed, or they have limited hours, or they can only see, see people by appointment. It is. Uh, it's not very realistic to expect that the tenant to just walk into the office and hand the notice to somebody. Uh, by the same um, token, going to the, to the post office might be dangerous for people who are staying at home because they have uh, potentially a health risk or they're actually sick. So uh, we think that the interpretation of this has to be much broader 
and allow for um, giving the notice in, in whichever way is possible to be given. Um, I think obviously if it's uh, sent by email, just an acknowledgement on behalf of the landlord that they received it or just the, the email that the tenant can save showing that they sent it uh, might be sufficient to prove that they gave the notice in writing. Additionally, the constable will ask for that notice when they come to execute the risk. So they could also see the notice and if the landlord hasn't received it or doesn't want to acknowledge receiving it, the constable would also have a copy. As to the supporting documents, um, the, the executive order only talks about available supporting documents. We know that a lot of people were let go from work without necessarily getting something in writing. Sometimes it's just an email, sometimes it's just a text. Uh, they, a lot of, you know, folks have informal jobs in the gig economy. A lot of people lost their jobs because they were doing uh, deliveries or, 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 or some kind of uh, service that they would provide but now have not been able to do so and may not actually have documentation for that. So, again, we have to interpret everything in a very broad sense. I, now it might be a little bit easier to get a doctor's note. When this order first came out on March 24th, it was impossible to actually get a note from a doctor saying that the doctor had recommended the person be isolated. Uh, there were no tests available at the time. Um, so again, um, I just encourage a broad interpretation of what the supporting document is that they need to provide. Thank you. One of the things that we did address when we amended the best practice was there were some landlords who were moving to compel uh, because the person lost their job or didn't pay the, May, uh, the March rent, um, but they didn't prove that they lost their job until after March 24th, after the executive order came out. Uh, so we did want to specify that um, if, if a COVID situation arose at any time in March, that that would be a valid reason for a tenant to invoke the protection of the executive order. We also looked at the time for a judge to consider the motion to compel. The motion to compel is something that is not covered in the rules of eviction procedure. This is a motion that was created because of the necessity of the, of the executive order. Um, so we didn't view it to be constrained by the rules. Uh, in our best practice, we suggested that five days is the appropriate time to set this for a telephonic hearing and to encourage a written response by the tenant. We think if it's set sooner than five days that we're really making it much more difficult for the tenant to defend against that action um, or to appear and make it more likely that um, that a motion would be unopposed and a tenant who would otherwise be entitled to the protection of the executive order would lose that protection. Uh, so that is why we suggested the five days. And that would be set to a telephonic motion, of course, because uh, for the near future at least, uh, we're, we're still not letting people into the courtroom for the most part. Judge Williams? That that was two to the main points I was going to hit on you just covered. Um, the, the motion to compel enforcement of the writ is, is something that we just invented. The, the governor's executive order in paragraph one starts off with, unless the court determines on motion of the parties that is, enforcement is necessary, and then it goes on from there. So we didn't know what to call these things, so we just came up with, a motion to compel enforcement of the writ because it, it's clear what that motion is. Um, while we, we allow the tenant to file a, a, a written response, or which we, we give time for the tenant to file a written response, it, it doesn't have to be in formal motion format. I think most of us have been very loose uh, in terms of accepting you know, an email from the tenant, and then we fax it to the landlord's attorney, or, or something like that. 
Um, so the normal formal requirements of, of tenants filing motions uh, or uh, some kind of opportunity to respond just doesn't usually, well, apply. We, there's no re need to be, you know, formalistic and say they have to use one of our court-approved motion forms or, or something like that. They can send us an email and an attachments to emails, and uh, then it's it's not necessarily the the court's job to get it to the other side. But what we frequently do is because the court may the the tenant may or may not have. Um, an ability to get it to the landlord's attorney another way, or they may not realize that they're supposed to do that. So we've been we've been providing it, but for the most part, the ones I've done, where there's a been a motion to compel from the landlord, there hasn't been much response and writing from the tenant. It's been more them appearing verbally at at the telephonic hearing, and all of us have a sort of a conference call set up now where the the landlord attorney calls in the tenant calls in and the judge is there and it's it's not ideal but everybody can hear everything that's going on at the same time and you don't need any kind of fancy technology to do it to participate because everybody pretty much has access to a telephone so that's that's how we've been doing these hearings um, even though the landlord is the one making the motion the burden of proof is on the tenant to establish by a preponderance of the evidence that the tenant meets one or more of the criteria in paragraph one of the, the governor's order. If a judge uh, denies the motion to compel, then the status quo just continues and the landlord at some point can either file another motion to compel if they think the circumstances have changed or they can presumably wait for the governor's executive order to expire if I grant the motion to compel, the language I've been writing on the ruling on motion forms is the court has determined from the record in this case that the tenant has failed to establish a qualifying condition under Arizona Executive Order 2020-14. Therefore, it is ordered that the constable serve and execute the writ of restitution as soon as is possible. At the hearing for the motion to compel, there's no reason why you can't take part the judge can't take some extra time with the landlord and the tenant and coordinate a move out date if the if the tenant is unable to meet the burden of proof and is not going to appeal the decision then uh, there's no reason to make that eviction be a surprise you can ask the tenant if they want to coordinate a time to turn their keys in and move out or or determine what the next step is but there's no reason for for these evictions to be a surprise when you're talking about what date the writ is going to come and the tenant is on the line. And, and that is an important point to make, um, and, and that's one reason why I suggest that you go ahead and do a hearing even if you think it's clear on paper that you can grant the motion to compel. I, I would recommend, in the best practice, does strongly suggest that you go ahead and hold the hearing because uh, you can address the topic of should the amendment be uh, should the judgment be amended to add additional rent that was unpaid, and also um, the move-out date because otherwise the constable could head right over after the hearing and lock the person out uh, since that writ has already been issued. Judge Huberman. Uh. Okay, um, I, I thought Judge Williams was also going to talk about the obligation to do uh, paying rent. Okay. Oh, okay. I, I, I thought I'd mentioned that earlier. Maybe I was mistaken, but the, the the obligation for the tenant to pay rent doesn't go away. It doesn't go away under uh, the normal terms of the lease, and it specifically doesn't go away under the governor's executive order. So, like. Judge Huberman mentioned earlier, it's not a rent forgiveness or or a rent delay order. Um, just anecdotally, we seem to be seeing far, far fewer eviction cases filed um, than we normally do. So I'm hoping that that's an indication that landlords and tenants are working together, that people are entering into partial payment agreements, and that um, people are solving this 
uh, and other types of issues outside of the court system rather than resorting to court. I mean, we're here to try to help adjudicate cases, obviously, but to the extent that people can work on these issues outside of court that both sides may not agree on, but it's something that both sides can live with. And one of the changes that we made from the original best practice was the original best practice was the judge should, while entering judgment, should inform the tenant of uh, that they still are required to pay rent. We changed that language to the judge should inform the tenant uh, that the obligation, obligation to pay rent remains because uh, we don't want to evict anyone because they're unable to pay rent for a COVID-19 reason. So that was an important change. We also strongly suggest that you can point the tenant to where they can find uh, that notice to give to the, the, their landlord. Judge Huberman? Uh, yes, uh, thank you. Following up on what Judge, uh, Williams just said, I, I was talking to a group from Pima County last week and um, they were telling me that, so, so when you look at the numbers in Arizona, uh, for the month of April, only about 10% of uh, renters in multifamily homes have not paid their rent. Although nationwide, that number was 30%. They do expect that that's going to get worse in May, um, so we'll be seeing that. Um, in this next couple of weeks now in May. Uh, but apparently the informal evictions have gone up. A lot of people are just, um, I think there were always informal evictions, the ones that we never saw in court, but that those numbers are going up significantly, that landlords are just uh, locking tenants out of the home, and tenants who don't have the resources or don't know where to go uh, are being left out of their home. Um, so that's just something to, to take in. Um, we won't see those because they are informal. We could eventually see them if they come back to us as uh, illegal ousters, what we call the reverse eviction. Um, there's a potential. I haven't seen any, uh, but that I guess could happen. Um, so I was going to talk about the expiration of the uh, the order. The order just says that it, 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 it will be in effect for 120 days. And so unless there is another order issued or some verification or something else comes out of the governor's office, um, I would interpret this to mean that all of these writs that have been delayed or have been stayed, once the order expires on July 23rd, they now become enforceable. Uh, because those writs are in the hands of the constables, the judges have already signed the writs, uh, I don't believe that they would come back to court to enforce them, that they, landlord would just call the constable and tell them, you now need to enforce this risk. Um, there are some concerns nationwide about mass evictions uh, that will happen uh, around the time all of these orders, the different orders in the different states and the federal orders expire, which will be uh, between July and August. Um, prior to all this, there was a very tight rental market where any unit that was uh, someone was evicted from or, or became available, immediately they were able to re-rent that unit. Uh, there were waiting lists for people to get in. We don't know what that market looks like now, so who knows if the landlords are going to really want those tenants who are now getting back to work and maybe having income, if they're going to want them evicted or not. It's all very unclear. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen. But the truth is that all of those tenants will probably now have a very large debt of the back rent that has been owed. And because these orders don't say anything about how to pay back that back rent, um, potentially the landlord could request uh, that four months be paid up right away, and if they're not, then the risk would be executed. One of the major changes that we made to the amended best practice was to address the issue of the legal status of the tenant. Uh, as, as we've mentioned a couple times in the podcast, this is unchartered waters. 
Uh, as Judge Williams explained, the eviction process in Arizona is normally very fast. Uh, so traditional Arizona case law held that the lease was terminated when the judge signs the judgment. Uh, again, that expectation is the writ of restitution is going to issue five days later, the constable is going to go right out there and lock the person out. Uh, that is no longer the case, and so we were left with a thorny issue of what exactly is the status of the parties. The executive order specifically says the obligation to pay rent, uh, the obligation to, to pay rent remains, and it also says that the other um, obligations under the lease must be recognized by all parties. Uh, so we thought the most logical explanation to provide then is that um, there, there, this is a temporary uh, amendment to Arizona law and the lease in effect continues uh, during, uh, during the status, uh, during the time that the uh, stay is not being executed. The alternative, uh, the, an alternative is that a new lease is created with the same terms as the old lease. It's just a little cleaner just to go ahead and extend the terms of the current lease. Uh, the alternatives were far less savory, such as declaring the tenant a holdover, or a squatter, or a trespasser, uh, because otherwise there is no legal basis uh, for that tenant to remain in the premises against the will of the landlord. Uh, so the committee did decide that the best option was to uh, consider that the lease did and the lease terms do continue until the time that the tenant actually leaves the premises. If the tenant leaves the premises because the writ is executed, uh, then um, prior to that execution, if the landlord has filed the motion to compel, the judgment can be amended to include whatever rent is due and owing. Uh, if the tenant moves out before the motion to compel has been, uh, before a motion to compel has been issued, then the landlord can file a separate civil action to recover any rent. Uh, if the tenant does pay up in full and the landlord has failed to satisfy the judgment, the uh, tenant can apply uh, to have the judgment satisfied and to vacate the writ. Um, so we that is how we resolve the issue of the legal status of the parties. Judge Williams? I, I agree. Uh, it, was, it was very, very frustrating to, to try to, to it's, it's hard to make a decision on the case that's in front of you if you have no idea what's going to happen next month or the month after that, and you don't know some things that you would know normally, like what is the legal status of the tenant? Um, the it, it remains uh, unclear. There's not there's not a legal status for a tenant who remains in possession of the residence while the execution of the writ's been postponed. We just we've never had that before. Uh, there's no recognized category to describe that kind of situation. Uh, we looked at some things. We we looked at that the governor's executive order requires the tenant to acknowledge that the contractual terms of the lease continue. Uh, a stated intent of the governor's executive order is to protect public safety and avoid the serious consequences of Arizonans losing their rental housing. We looked at the other categories that we could try to pigeonhole a tenant in, and they were all bad. Um, is the tenant in a holdover status? Um, could the tenant be facing a second eviction judgment for the same residence? Um, could they be considered a tenant at sufferance under common law? That didn't seem to apply. Could, they're not a squatter. They're not a trespasser. Um, and then if you find that the tenancy was terminated, then what are the landlord's obligations to the tenant? Can, they, can the landlord cut off utilities? Can they cut off water and power uh, as it's 100 degrees every day now? Um, could they cut off air conditioning? Uh, do the tenant's remedies continue? If against the landlord, if the tenancy is terminated, um, you know these are all problems. Um, does if the landlord accepts a rent after an eviction judgment has been signed, 
could that arguably create a new tendency? Um, perhaps, perhaps academically, someone could make that argument, but it just it conflicts with objective reality. Um, the the best thing we could come up with was to create the legal fiction uh, that the tenancy continues even though the eviction judgment's been signed, and at that point the court should at least entertain motions from the landlord to amend the eviction judgment to subsequently include uh, accrued rent and whether any other damages are more appropriate alleged in the civil case or small claims case after that is a, a different issue. But the it, it created a problem. But the only way to make anything make sense was for us to conclude that the tenancy continued. What happens after the governor's executive order expires is, is anyone's best guess. Um, hopefully, uh, the partial payment agreements that have apparently been entered into can continue either from people finally getting their unemployment or from finally getting their stimulus check or, or something like that. Um, hopefully those will continue, but there is a chance that the constables will suddenly be swamped with uh, eviction actions. Um, and so what they would probably do is prioritize everything like they have to prioritize things. So if they have to serve an order of protection, that would probably get served first. Um, immediate evictions would probably be next. And after that, they would get to eviction actions enforcing writs of restitution as, as best as they can. But there, there is a, a real concern that Judge Huberman raised earlier that we don't really know what's going to happen with all these cases where uh, writs have been signed. I continue to assign a lot more judgments than I sign writs of restitution, so I'm optimistic that something is getting worked out or people are, are voluntarily moving on their own. Um, one thing uh, Judge Huberman said earlier, uh, she, she called them informal evictions. Uh, I would call those illegal evictions. Uh, you, you, you know kidding can't lock out a tenant in, in Arizona. There's some very significant uh, statutory remedies if, if a landlord does that. I remember attending a, a continuing education class one time where the presenter spent the first 30 minutes talking about lockouts and I had to raise my hand and say, I, I have to assume you're talking about commercial leases because nothing you're saying here applies to residential. And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll get to residential in a moment. I'm like, okay. Uh, but uh, you, you cannot lock out a tenant in Arizona. You, you read these horror stories from other states where um, there's a book called Evictions, I think, uh, that's, that's fairly popular where landlords would allegedly knock on the door and and tell people they had to move, and they actually would charge them um, to move their stuff to a U-Haul that they had waiting. And if they couldn't afford the U-Haul, they would just move all the tenants' property to the curb, where it would be pilfered by the their neighbors. Um, if, if you do that in Arizona, there are very, very serious consequences. Um, the tenant obviously has to know their rights. But if anyone's knocking on the door and telling people, you have to move right now, and there anybody other than the constable, uh, that should not be happening. And Judge Williams, since you just mentioned uh, commercial lockouts, uh, there actually is a governor's executive order that prohibits um, lockouts and commercial evictions. That's a matter for a whole other podcast that we're not going to address. Uh, and speaking of not addressing, for every question that we answer, there's probably at least five that were not answered. And um, we want judges to act in their best, with their just best judgment, in their be uh, in the best interests of all the parties involved. We couldn't make the best practice 140 pages long. Uh, we didn't want to be writing new rules, new statutes. Um, so there are some answered unanswered questions, um, such as. What about late? Uh, what about late fees? How do we address that? Do either of you want to address that? 
My, my guess is some or all the late fees are going to be waived by most judges. Um, I, I don't have any particular insight on that. But if, if you're in a protected status, the reason you can't pay your rent is you, you lost your, your job during, due to a COVID-related condition. Um, you could almost make uh, an argument that the governor's executive order um, raises an impossibility-type defense to performance of the contract. Um, normally, uh, a job if someone lost their job in January and couldn't pay their rent, they were charged late fees, um, unless the late fees were unconscionable. Uh, so it, it's, you, you can make an argument that for the first time, the, the governor's executive order sort of offers a defense um, to the accrual of late fees, but by the same token, the governor's executive order says that the terms of the contract continue and the lease continues. So I, I think it's probably going to be a similar standard to, in that particular case, are the late fees, you know, unfairly high. If the, the late fee of $50 a day is probably too much for most apartment complexes, it might not be too much for a luxury home in a country club addition if the rent is $2,000 a month. So, unfortunately, it's going to be a case-by-case -case basis. They, I remember a law professor telling me in law school that, we had reached a critical point in our legal education when we lost the ability to say yes or no. And the answer to everything was it depends. Unfortunately, I think on, on late fees, it's going to be a, it depends. Um, if the landlord comes back for four different motions to compel, are they going to be entitled to attorney's fees on each one of them? You know, I, I don't know. They're doing their job. They're entitled to attorney's fees mainly, but if, if they're losing, if they lost three of them and, Maybe it's the, the fourth one that finally works because the circumstances have changed. Maybe they don't get attorney's fees on the first three. I, I just I don't know the answer to those types of, of questions. Unfortunately, they're, they're just going to have to be sorted out. I, I will say I'm very proud of the efforts that Maricopa County JPs have put into this thing. Um, we're kind of flying blind where there is not a lot of guidance. And... I think we produced a, a very, very good um, product and then felt the need to amend it and did a, uh, an amended best practice that I, I feel we can all be proud of. I, I agree with that. I think that, you know, it's happened to all of us that for every question we answer, another three come up that don't get answered. Everybody has a new, oh, this happened to me today, this happened, um, and it is kind of difficult. Uh, so the late fees, what I see in, in, in the late fees, they usually late fees are, are a penalty for not fulfilling the obligations of the lease. And in this case, um, the non-payment wasn't necessarily uh, something to be penalized because the person lost their job or whatever it was. And, and again, I think there'll be a lot of judicial discretion. I agree with Judge Williams that a lot of judges might just look at it and say, it is unfair. Um, in the end, the the tenants have are the ones who've lost out on their salaries and their income. And I'm not saying that the landlords aren't suffering because many of them um, surely are. Uh, especially if you remember those statistics I gave at the beginning, that 50% of all landlords are actually private owned. They're not in large corporations, uh, so they're also suffering. But in the end, they're entitled to the full amount of the rent. They're entitled to get everything back. Uh, the tenant is not necessarily entitled to get all their lost income back for these months uh, that have passed and are going forward. So those are all things that we need to look at. The one thing that I we didn't talk about that I just wanted to really quickly touch upon that's in the best practice is that I've heard a lot of arguments from attorneys saying the tenant got their stimulus check. The tenant should be uh, collecting unemployment. What are they doing? Uh, can you make them prove that they uh, that they're looking for a job? Or um, I think that all that has to do with the relationship between the tenant and the landlord, and to Judge Williams' point, to whatever they can work out. But there is nothing in the executive order that 
put any type of burden on the tenants to either look for a job to get a job or to show what they did with their stimulus money. Uh, the numbers in Arizona are encouraging. I think the tenants are trying to pay. They're willing to pay. Landlords are willing to work with them. Um, and the fact that our evictions have dropped uh, is probably an indicator that that is happening. I think there's also 30% of the properties are covered under the CARES Act, so those are, um, they, they can't file evictions. But of the others, we're definitely not getting even the 10%. So I think that landlords are working with tenants. But uh, just, to, just to be clear that there's no onus on the tenant uh, through the executive order. Um, and then that, from what I've heard, the other counties are all looking at Maricopa. You know, we do have 75 or 80% of all the evictions in the state, and mostly they're just following our best practice. They're looking to what we're doing and following what we are doing. Um, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of other questions. Uh, feel free to email any of us at any time uh, with anything that we can help. And if there are novel questions that continue to arise that the best practices committee has to address. We'll go ahead and amend the best practice again. Again, it's possible the governor is going to issue a new executive order or amend this one and we may have to uh, to address that as well. So we will stay on top of the issue to provide uh, as much guidance as we can on the issue. Um, does anyone have anything further? Right. Well, thanks for bringing us all together to do this. Well, thank, thank you. you. Well, virtually all together. And uh, <laughs> so again, you'll find the materials in the Hightail, uh, in the Hightail Judicial Resource tab. And everyone stay healthy. Don't touch your face. Stay safe. And before we go, May the 4th, did I say that right? has become an unofficial holiday for Star Wars fans. So we leave you tonight with an excerpt from composer and conductor John Williams and the Vienna Philharmonic playing the Imperial March as we all look forward to the day when we go to concerts and movies again. Exactly.